I'm Dr. Richard Bolzakelli, lecturer in theology at Catholic Studies Academy, and I'm joined this week by Tyler Ross, a canonist for the Diocese of Knoxville. Today we'll be talking about his work as a canon lawyer, and in particular, canonical issues surrounding matrimonial law, annulment, dissolution, and other related questions. So, why don't we jump right in? Mr. Ross, many people in our audience probably have some idea of what a canonist is and what a tribunal is, but I'm sure others don't. Um, so why don't you explain uh, what this is? How would you go about explaining that? Yeah, yeah, sure. I think it's a good place to start. So um, the way I normally explain what a canonist is, uh, is, is first of all, breaking it down in two ways, what we study and then what we do. And so what we study, um, Everyone knows what a, uh, a JD is, right? A, a lawyer, right? They get a, mm -hmm. a Juris Doctor. Um, and so my degree is actually essentially the equivalent of that, but in the ecclesiastical setting. So I got a three-year degree in the governing laws and structures of the church. Um, so another analogy I give is uh, a comparison, I should say, is uh, so I live in the state of Tennessee. Um, but whatever state you're in, uh, you will have a state code, right? The, the big book of laws that govern the state. And the church has the same thing. We have a big book of laws that governs the church. Um, and there's other laws that are not in that big book as well. So like liturgical law and things like that. Um, so my area of study was in, in the code of canon law. So like a regular lawyer would study the code, the, you know, the Tennessee state code or um, uh, federal law, statutory law. I studied the statutory law of the church, which we just call canon law. Uh, the word canon itself uh, comes, it, it's kind of redundant, actually. The word canon means like a rule or measure of something. And so uh, typically it, it, it gets translated or sometimes at least it gets translated as law. So canon law, because of the word done, it's just law, law. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so so that's what I've studied is the law of the church. And it doesn't overlap at all with civil law. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm called a canon lawyer um, as distinct from a civil lawyer, one might say. And so I have no expertise or knowledge of the civil law of, uh, you know, the, the, the place in the government where I live. Um, but I have knowledge and expertise in the church to which I belong. Um, so that's what I've studied. Um, canon law covers a broad range of things, though. Uh, anything from, like I said already, liturgical laws is one thing. Um, uh, penal law is another big thing. Procedural law, um, how to govern uh, religious institutes, um, uh, sacramental law. So that brings us kind of to what we'll be talking about today is marriage is one part of that sacramental law. Um mm -hmm. And yeah, so the, the law is governing marriage. So then there's what I do. Uh, what, what does one with a canon law degree do? It's a very limited number of things one can do with a canon law degree. Uh, but the by and large, the most common one is to work in a diocesan tribunal. And uh, the, the tribunal is just the fancy Latin word for court, right? So uh, every diocese or nearly every diocese has a tribunal. Uh, constituted by the diocesan bishop, and um, that tribunal, ninety gosh nine percent of what it does is actually process uh, cases for uh, marriage nullity, so annulments. Mm -hmm. um, so that's basically all I do every day. 
uh, is is pro help process and certain parts of that process, uh, marriage and only cases. Uh, but just real quick, other things that canonists can do, um, you know, I've heard of canonists being the chancellor of a diocese. Makes sense. I've heard of canonists doing, um, uh, what do you call it, like freelance work, uh, where they will uh, represent um, uh, parties in a marriage nullity trial, but possibly also priests in a penal trial or mm -hmm. uh, groups of people like up north, they're closing parishes. And sometimes the parishioners of a church will band together and seek recourse against the decision of the bishop and hire a canon lawyer to, you know, not of the diocese, because technically the canonists in the diocese work for the bishop. So it would be improper to solicit the services of a um, canonist of the diocese for recourse against the bishop. So uh, there mm -hmm. are yeah canonists that are independent and um, do this kind of work as well. So, but what I do is I work in my diocesan tribunal and I process uh, marriage and all cases. Right. So, um, that's kind of depressing. I mean, when you when you think about it, <clears throat> the majority of what you do, like overwhelmingly, is um, marriage nullity, right? So you're surrounded yep. every day with like just um, the strewn bodies of marital failure. Uh, is that at all dark to you? Um, it definitely takes the right kind of person. <laughs> uh -huh. Um. You have to not let other people's failures become yours on an emotional level. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, all the people that we see, um, most of the falling out that has happened has happened already. So um, we can get into this rabbit hole if you want. But in the United States, at least, uh, it's generally required that the couple already be civilly divorced prior to petitioning for a declaration of nullity. And so the, the ugliness of all of that has largely dissipated by the time it gets to us. The mm -hmm. marriage has already fallen apart. Um, the, the, you know, practical details have been worked out in the, in the divorce. And so what kind of how I experience it really is less of, certainly not any kind of like mediator, you know, some, sometimes when I'm describing what I do to people and I, you know, can tell they don't really want to hear the whole deal. I just say, I work in marriage ministry and every now and then I'll get somebody like, Oh, so do you like talk to married couples about, you know, their, their marriage and um, help them like stay together. I'm like, eh, not really. <laughs> so I don't do anything like that. Um, but but it's like problem solving, actually, because they they are alleging that their marriage is invalid, and and I part of my job is to have to like work through that with them, according to the process that's laid out by the church, and kind of fit pieces together and and see if what they're saying makes sense. You know, throw a case together, um, ask all the right questions, um, that kind of thing. So. Yeah, it's not as depressing as one might initially think because it's it's almost like two people like me and the 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 petitioner um, and sometimes the the respondent party as well um, problem solving like putting puzzle pieces together. Although you're talking about things that are somewhat sensitive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do people experience it as cathartic? 
Yeah, I think regularly people experience it as cathartic. A lot of times because it's people who um, are not Catholic. You know, we get a lot of people in RCIA who who they'll come through the RCIA program. They'll have a, a, a previous marriage and they learn about the church's teaching on marriage for the first time. And and part of the healing from that first attempted marriage comes through the tribunal process where, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, here's kind of relationally how the marriage broke down. Um, but it can be cathartic and healing for them to see on a, on a technical level, uh, why it didn't have the building blocks necessary in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that gives a lot of people closure. Uh, it, it, it helps, um, people put kind of like meat on the bones, you know, like I said, they know relationally why it broke down, but, but why did we have such a bad relationship from the beginning? Well, we can maybe tell you why. Of course, yeah, that only so, applies in cases where the marriage is invalid, but nevertheless. Yeah, so the Catholic Church, um, obviously, <clears throat> I mean, most in our audience probably know that the Catholic Church, um, as a matter of her constant teaching, rejects the um, rejects divorce and remarriage, at least mm -hmm. in the sense of um, if we're talking about a marriage contracted under the order of grace, what we would call a sacramental marriage, <clears throat> that marriage is um, regarded by the church as being in principle indissoluble, right? Mm -hmm. So we can't just get divorced and marry somebody else. And yep. obviously that's, we we know, you and I know, and many in our audience would be aware that um, some of the controversies currently swirling around in the church regard how to address um, the situation of those who, having dissolved a, um, a sacramental marriage, have then gone on to attempt to contract another. Mm -hmm. um, at least now, when I say dissolved, I, obviously I mean under civil, in civil right. courts. Um, and the Catholic Church, of course, doesn't recognize their their situation. Mm -hmm. But um, but many people would criticize the annulment process if they know maybe a little bit about it. Maybe they know someone who's gone through it or something. They might criticize it, saying, "Well, I mean, it's just Catholic divorce." You know, um, yeah, they say they don't believe in divorce and remarriage, but at a practical level, it's obvious that this is just sort of a hoop they hold up. And when they're done, um, you, you're divorced. What would you say to, to that? I think in the experience of a lot of people, that's true. Uh, the way that, you know, tribunals maybe in recent decades have handled it, especially uh, with with the level of... Um, of um you know readiness that they give out affirmatives mm -hmm. that may be how it's perceived uh, and to some level that may be true um and so obviously conceptually it's it's totally different uh the difference between a, a declaration of nullity and a divorce uh is is you know it's night and day um obviously a divorce would be a dissolution of the bond that was there and now it's gone right it was validly placed validly given validly received and we're going to erase it 
Um, whereas the declaration of nullity uh, would would really say we thought there was a valid contract from the beginning. It all looked good, but it wasn't there. There was something missing um, in the beginning when the contract was signed, as it were. The vows were exchanged that that made it not actually there like we all thought. So I think how one conceptualizes the process, you know, we can do all we can to make sure that the, the process and everything is done correctly. But at the end of the day, if the parties in the process are just kind of flippantly doing it and, and they approach it as a hoop to jump through, and it turns out the marriage actually is invalid, they're going to experience it simply as Catholic divorce. Um, that's where I think it takes a good, you know, pastor mm -hmm. and to some level, a good, you know, pastoral tribunal uh, to, to really reinforce the idea. Like this isn't a guarantee. Um, and the reason it's not a guarantee is because we don't believe in divorce. Like you think that the civil society does or, you know, whatever. Um, especially with the advent of no fault divorce, this is not just the church having higher standards for divorce than society. This is, are you even in a valid marriage to begin with? Um, yeah. Yeah. So the flippancy with which a person might approach the process. Um, it's interesting because in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, well, if you're approaching this process flippantly, it's likely I won't be surprised that we get a, a decree of nullity um, because you're, you're probably not of the right mentality to begin with to contract a marriage in the church. And so I'm, I'm, I'm not sure like what, aside from cleaning up some paperwork, I'm not sure in terms of spiritual growth, just how much, um, how much good has been done for you in that yep. particular case. Like, yeah. are you really better prepared to maybe attempt a, a a valid marriage at this point? I'm not sure the yeah. answer is yes. Yeah, I, I I tend to think no. Um, in fact, I I recently gave a talk uh, to the DREs and RCIA coordinators of my diocese uh, about a, a topic relating to this, where um, so related to RCIA. I also uh, teach one of the RCIA classes at my parish. Mm -hmm. So that's one reason I was able to go to this. But um, the approach that RCA catechists and DREs take when people come to RCA who have a previous marriage, right? What, what usually happens is that they say, oh, well, okay, you can't become Catholic uh, until you get a declaration of nullity because we we don't regard this marriage as valid. And and I have a huge problem with that approach. <laughs> I think that's that's a terrible approach for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, um, because it makes me out to be the bad guy, right? I'm the one who's preventing this person from becoming Catholic. But uh, it's not me. It's it's you. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, what we want is authentic conversion, authentic um, metanoia, and 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 a, a true profession of faith, right? Which would include a sober realization of one's own status as far as your marriage. Um, if a, you know, if a person becomes Catholic uh, because they got their declaration of nullity, but never had a true conversion of heart regarding their marriage, I would say they never had a true conversion. 
hopefully yeah. that comes later. And I, I don't think I would say we shouldn't have um, allowed them to become Catholic necessarily. But the point in that talk was they can become Catholic whenever they want, because what we should be doing, even before telling them about the annulment as a possibility, is helping them convert their heart, mind, and soul, and repenting of their sin. So I think if they take that approach, uh, the annulment process can be extremely fruitful either way. Um, if they don't take that approach and they want to have their cake and eat it too, then uh, you know we can, we can clear everything up on paper. We can declare that they're free to marry each other, uh, but, but have they actually converted? That was the question I posed. Uh, subtly answered by saying no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I'd like to get back to the beginning of your question. I, I do think it depends on the approach one takes. Um, the tribunal is not going to remind you over and over again, this is not a divorce. This is a declaration of nullity. Uh, have you converted your heart to Jesus, X, Y, and Z? That's not our job. Um, we can maybe interject that in a few places where we think it might be appropriate, but that's not what we're here for. Yeah, so, um, all right. So I think, um, uh, I guess I, I, in the minds of many people, though, you know, they'll kind of, I suspect that as people go through their own experiences of marriage, let's say outside of the canonical process, maybe they're not Catholic even, they might rehearse their their marital history and try to interpret what happened and you know they they may find themselves tracing back um sources of disunity to the very beginning of their marriage just in their own analysis uh now that's not canonically a process of annulment but 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 i think maybe people could say that um you know, they think of the Catholic process of annulment as just divorce because, I mean, isn't that just how divorces happen? Isn't that what people do when they get divorced? Um, and I kind of think to myself, well, maybe they're not entirely wrong about that. They're wrong about the conclusions they're drawing, but the observation may be correct. In other words, that um, deep down, no one really wants to admit that they abandoned a valid marriage. Mm -hmm. um they they are more comfortable with the idea that the reason their marriage failed was that there was something missing from the very beginning that but for that it, it might have worked right yeah psychologically yeah. i just think that's something people might do maybe quite often yeah um yeah i wish and this is one of the things i want to do in our tribunal uh, as we didn't mention this before, but we're a new tribunal, actually. We only were founded in 2020, so mm -hmm. we've only been doing this for three years. <laughs> um, but but one of the things I want to do eventually, once we get our feet a little more on the ground and stable, is maybe have like follow-up kind of something or other with people um, to see where they're at. Because um, right now, I really don't have any of that data. Once the mm -hmm. process is done, we don't talk to them. Um, so... I see how people handle it in the midst of it, but I don't see how people receive it 
and and like kind of sit with it for a mm. while. So I can't really speak to that, to be honest. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think the, um, <clears throat> well, let me ask you this question. Um, what percentage, if you have an answer to this, um, what percentage of those whom you see come through your tribunal, um, what percentage of cases where there's a petition for nullity involve um, at least one Catholic party? Like I someone who's think... Catholic, someone who was Catholic at the yeah. time the marriage was contracted or the divorce right. occurred. Okay. Right. I think it would be not as much as you think, but if I had to guess, it would be probably around 60%. A lot of mm. them, though, are, like I said, RCI people, so they're becoming Catholic, or um, somebody who wants to marry Catholic, the Catholic party being free to marry, but the Protestant, usually it's the Protestant party, um, having a previous marriage who either does or doesn't want to become Catholic. So yeah, if I had to guess, I would say it's about 60, 40 in favor of one of the parties being Catholic at the time of the wedding. That being said, uh, of the 60% where one party was Catholic, I would say it's close to like 70%, maybe 80, that it was a mixed marriage where one of the parties was not Catholic. Mm -hmm. um, so when I, whenever I talk to people about, you know, lessons learned in the tribunal <laughs> from like my point of view, um, one of the things, one of the first things I'll say is just kind of based on that evidence, it appears that uh, in order to have a happy marriage, you should be equally yoked. <laughs> yeah. Surprise, surprise, follow the advice right. of scripture. Yeah, that's Paul's that's Paul's language, right? To be equally yoked, don't be unequally yep. yoked. Now he says don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Sure. Um, but the principles. But I think I think even within I, I I imagine that even within other Christian denominations, particularly where the disparity of cult is um doctrinally very significant, um <clears throat> that I would bet, I would bet that your findings would be um, the bigger that divide is, the more likely statistically you are to to fail in marriage. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I mean, I don't have the stats for that, and I don't know how well people have studied that. Probably somewhere in the literature on canon law, there's, there's, um, yeah. Could I mean, be, I, I know there's kind of maybe Pew research. <laughs> there's more than one canon law journal out there, right? Oh, yeah. And they, yeah, they yeah. study, they do this. But but someone. I don't know that they do that, that kind of sociological study, though. Um, I remember back about twenty years ago, the twenty maybe twenty five years ago, I was um, reading Ken Law journals uh, on the question of nullity, and and I would say about fifty percent of what was being published at that time, tracing back for the previous ten years, was about annulment. I don't know what it's like now because I haven't read Ken Law journals. Yeah, recently, but um, but back then, about probably about half the half the literature was specifically about uh, nullity, and um, and I remember that I would check out. I would remember that several um, 
I came across several articles spanning back about 10 years in which um, the in which the researchers were trying to unearth um, mentalities um, that tended to resolve in divorce and marital failure um attitudes about divorce attitudes about marriage right yeah um yeah and, i would love to do a kind of microcosm study of that kind of thing in our diocese yeah. and then work with the marriage office it's been like a long-term goal of mine even before i started yeah. working for our diocese it would be good to have some sociologists involved um because yeah. i i do think there's some real questions there and i think the answers are probably like I can anticipate what those answers are, but I can't say for sure that that's the case. Yeah. But your anecdotal observation probably uh, would suggest. So um, anyway, the um, I think that is strangely encouraging, actually. Right? Because what you're suggesting is that um, marital failure resulting in a petition for nullity is comparatively rare where both parties are catholic yeah and from the sound of it where you're talking about mixed marriages um probably it sounds to me that the more intentionally catholic the parties are the less likely their marriage is to end in divorce yeah. not that that never happens right you and i probably both know of cases where it has yeah, but um, but it's just significantly statistically less likely to occur. Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm thinking of one that um that we were just dealing with the other day, where both parties were very intentionally Catholic, like very Catholic. <clears throat> but um, one of the reasons that the marriage failed, or let's say the predominant reason the marriage failed, was because of a severe um psychological issue, schizophrenia. And so, um, you know, best of intentions, but yeah. You know, so that's Catholic. an interesting case, actually. Th th I think a lot of people, um, that's a really interesting case. I, I think a lot of people have um, maybe the view that when people get divorced, it's always, um, it, it's always because someone's a bad actor. Now I I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm not promoting no-fault divorce. That's not what no-fault divorce addresses. Yeah. But in this particular case, really, it isn't anyone's fault that this marriage failed. It was due to a disease. Right. Um, a disease that made it impossible. I'll let you speak more to this, I guess. But I I'm just saying as a... I would call it a four-cause divorce rather than a no-fault divorce, like in this circumstance. It's four-cause, but not a moral cause. Yeah. Right. That, that I think is the issue, right? There's a cause. Yep. The cause is a disease yep. that prevented the two right. parties from being able to contract marriage. Yeah. And the reason is that the schizophrenia, the condition made of schizophrenia, it impossible for a party to live out the marriage vows. Yeah, it makes it virtually impossible, right? I mean, you it's hard to tell the difference between fact and fiction um yep. with schizophrenia. It's yep. not the person's fault. That this is the case right it's just yeah. it is the case is the case yeah yeah was there a question there no i just think it's a really interesting thing to yeah to, it to is take note of and 
this is maybe getting into the weeds a little bit, but uh, one of the things that we're having to work through in this particular case um, is, you know, so that if this is an ongoing case, so um, we haven't made a decision about it yet, but if it's invalid, it would be because the person due to their schizophrenia was unable to live out the marriage contract, right? So you, you have right. certain rights and obligations. The analogy I give, I play tennis, is, um, you know, if you're a tennis player uh, or not a tennis player uh, and you sign a contract with Nike to sponsor you, um, but you have no arms, <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, you you could have, you know, signed it somehow, right, uh, through a proxy <laughs> or something, but <laughs> but if you can't play tennis, Nike's not sponsoring you. That's an invalid contract. So similar thing, but on a psychological level, if for psychological reasons, um, you can't live out what you're saying you're going to do, you can't fulfill your end of the bargain, so to speak, right? then you're incapable now, of, of contracting marriage. Yeah. So let me, so let my, me jump in on this, this because, this, um, okay, yeah, go ahead. so I, I think an important point on this matter is that the condition of schizophrenia in this case would have to have been that severe at the time at the, the marriage was contracted. It couldn't be exactly. something that happened afterwards. Yep. Now, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I don't know enough about how schizophrenia develops in people, but like, yeah. it would have to be a severe and persistent form of schizophrenia at yep. the time the marriage was contracted, right? Otherwise, you made yep. vows for in sickness and in health. In sickness and in health, exactly. Yeah, so, that, so we look at that too. Um, in this particular case, it, it was severe at the time of the wedding. Um, but what's interesting is that, and this is typical, I think, in my understanding with schizophrenia, is on medication, you're, you're good. You're totally fine. You know, you may have a little quirk here and there, but like whatever, nothing invalidating. Uh, but off medication, you're very not fine, uh -huh. right? Yeah, that's where you, that's reality starts to break down when you're not on medication. So the, the interesting question question that we're going to have to ask is given that the party was on medication at the time of consent um were they capable of of contracting marriage or is the habitual need to be on medication otherwise your reality breaks down uh, an invalidating uh, condition yeah so now you're asking that as a lawyer let me address it as a theologian all right so um my conjecture here would be it depends mm. all right so it's possible that there are things we simply don't know right and like we don't i don't want to conjecture that the couple entered into the contract the attempted marriage in bad faith like they they're trying to get away with something they know that this doesn't really fly but they're going to do it anyway that's not really what it sounds like um, a scenario like this is about, right? But yeah. instead, people probably believe that they are fine, that their situation is manageable. like, And that, that's assuming that somebody actually was on medication and understood their condition. It's, it's also possible yeah. that people, I've heard of cases where people, um, they don't really know they, they, don't, they don't know they have this massive condition, right? Yeah. Um, until 
you know, things begin to break down around them and then it comes to light, but they've been living with it. And right. So that, that would, in that case, you would have probably a defect of consent, right? You would probably have, like if the person had the condition, did not know they had the condition because it hadn't been properly diagnosed and they kind of thought that they were fine, but um, they really weren't. Yeah. That would probably be a defect of consent. Yeah. I, I think, you know, it's always hard for me. I'm a typical lawyer. I'll say probably. Yeah, probably, right? So I know there are a lot of particular... You have to get into the particular yeah, case. you right? got to get into the weeds, yeah. But um, but let's say that the person, like, you say, well, I'm schizophrenic, right? I'm not, but like, let's say I'm schizophrenic. Um, I'm taking this medication and it's working great. I mean, yeah, I have my moments, but for the most part, this is manageable. And my spouse or my would-be spouse um, knows that I have this condition and, yeah. you know, we've talked about it and I'm, I'm taking the medication. Um, so I think we could do this. But what they don't realize is that um, that medication perhaps, I'm speaking as an amateur, I don't know if this is the case or not. But let's say that that medication, maybe it, the doctors know that it could work for a while, but you never really know when it might stop working. And if it does, what else they could do about it. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, that concern has escaped the notice of the person involved. Yeah. Right. Well, then I, I don't see that would be one of those cases where I might say um, it's not a defect of consent exactly. Maybe on one could argue maybe a defect of consent because they were consenting to something they didn't have the full knowledge, right? It was like not informed consent, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. um, but I think more to the point is that you do have an inability to execute. You, you can't actually, fulf- you cannot know that you can fulfill the promises that you're making long term. Mm-hmm. You think you can, but actually you you just don't know that. Yeah, uh, that raises another very interesting kind of question, though, is how long term must it be? So we right. raised the hypothetical. I could go senile, about, right? Right. Yep. Everybody goes, you know, well, not everybody, but a lot of people will lose their mental faculties as they get older. Let's say hypothetically one could know that one would get Alzheimer's a week after they got married Mm -hmm. or let's make it easier. Let's say, you know, that you'll get Alzheimer's 30 years from now, whatever. Right. Yeah. 50 years from now. Um, Nobody would say that's an invalid marriage. Just knowing that you'll eventually be mentally incapacitated. Yeah. Yeah. So then, but back that down to a week, back it down to a day, right? Yeah. In that circumstance, more people might be inclined to say, oh, maybe that is invalid. My opinion is that it's not. Yeah. I think you and I would disagree on that. I think. Oh, really? I I, I would not. I would say that if you know you're going to go senile that soon, I, I would say you can't get married. And the reason is that, the reason I would say that, I mean, obviously this is just, this is just an academic argument, right? But like, the reason I would say it is that um, I think you need to have a good faith belief 
that you could that you could kind of barring some unanticipated event um or bar, barring something sort of outside your outside your knowledge and control you could expect to like produce children and educate them or something right what if you knew you were going to die the next day the next the very next day or you um, know a week later whatever yeah that's a really good question actually i, I don't know because <laughs> you wouldn't how many how many like wartime marriages do we want to do we want to annul well i'm not saying i want to annul it. no i, I know i'm just saying valid. if i want to if i were to maintain that you can't that's her that yeah. horizon's too short yep. I, I don't if, if it's would that mean that i had to annul of, like a third of marriages that happened a, during a second world war yeah right if it's invalid because of sickness you'd have to say it's also invalid because of death but i don't think that's i don't, I don't think knowledge of future events invalidates a marriage yeah. I, I could ask it another way what if you didn't know that you were going to have alzheimer's in a week yeah what this is like this yeah doesn't happen, well then like then too bad right? yeah then you're yeah then seemingly because what what you seem to be saying is it depends on what you know and if you know that you're going to have alzheimer's in a week well that's invalid but if you don't know that you're going to have alzheimer's you did it in good faith Okay, what if you know but you didn't disclose it to your spouse? Then your that spouse would be fraud. Yeah, then that your spouse entered into marriage and veiled in deceit. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's 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 interesting stuff. So this is a really, I mean, this is this is there's a lot of stuff involved in all this. Oh yeah, um, tell fun. me about a good day. <laughs> like what? Ninety nine percent of what you do is is um, annulments. Fine. Um, how about the, how about, um, uh, radical sonations? Tell us about that. I love these and I hate them. (laughs) So, um, okay. Where to begin with this? Let's say you have a couple who, um, one party was Catholic. Well, let me back up even further. If, if one is Catholic. Uh, and therefore bound to the laws of the church, then one of those laws is that you have to get married, as we colloquially say, in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, we call that getting married according to canonical form. Right. Um, so you have to get married uh, according to canonical form. Um, I liken it to, uh, again, the state, right? So if you want the state of Tennessee to recognize your marriage, The state of Tennessee has a civil form of marriage, which would include a deputized minister, uh, you know, just somebody deputized by the state to uh, witness your marriage, as well as, I think, at least one witness. It might be two in the state of Tennessee. I don't know. Um, But that's, you know, if you want the state of Tennessee to recognize your marriage, you got to get married according to the laws set forth by the state of Tennessee. The same thing is true of the church. Um, So if one does not do that, then the church does not recognize the marriage. There are two ways to remedy that problem. One way is to just simply get married according to canonical form, right? So so make vows correctly in in the right way, uh, Mm -hmm. in the right forum uh, in the church. 
Um, and by the way, I should just say really quick, the, uh, canonical form of the church is that you are obliged. We are obliged to get married, uh, before a properly delegated, uh, bishop, priest, deacon, or lay person, which never happens, um, but is possible. Uh, so you have to get married before one yeah. of those four people. And the lay person is possible under very specific canonical circumstances, though, right? It's not. Um, I, you know, I probably should. Not. I don't think there's actually any legislation that says when a lay person is allowed to be used. I would have to go double check myself. Yeah, on so that. I remember kind but of in nobody the does stuff, grant it. There's like if you can't get to a priest within a certain period of time or a deacon, yeah. then you could pronounce your vows in front of another yeah. lay person. Yeah. Um, and and I always thought of that as being something like, you know, you're you're a refugee or something, or you're you're off yeah. someplace, you can't, you know. Yeah. Or they're or like, they're like you know, mission territories where priests don't come yeah. by very often, right? Exactly. I was yeah, there was a, a priest in my canon law cohort actually who was from Papua New Guinea. Uh, yeah, PNG as he would always call it. <laughs> and and in, in Papua New Guinea, like, yeah, you would go without a priest for a long time. So that happened there. Um, but yeah, so okay, radical sanation. So there's two ways to remedy the problem of not being married uh in the church. One is to do a simple convalidation, which is just get married according to canonical uh -huh. form. And the other one is this weird thing called uh in English, a lot of times we call it a radical sanation. It's from the Latin sanatio in radice, S-A-N-A-T-I-O in I-N-R-A-D-I-C-E, sanatio in radice, which translates uh, more or less to a healing at the root. Yeah. Uh, and so what that does, it's this weird thing. Canonical form was something imposed by the church or the Council of Trent. So... Prior to the Council of Trent, uh, we were having this problem of clandestine marriages where, you know, according to the theology of the church, it's not the, the priest or whoever that makes you to be married. It's the, the mutual consent of the parties. That's mm -hmm. what brings about the marriage bond is my I do and my wife's I do. So um, therefore, if a couple just, you know, got went out and exchanged vows in the woods someday um, and and went back to their parish priest and reported that they had done so. Okay, you're married. But what happened was uh, that was getting kind of abused, and it was to be sure it was always the norm to get married in the church, right? Like we normally do even today. Um, but it, it did, these clandestine marriages did happen. People would abuse it. Um, you know, a couple would go get married. The man would let's say get what he gets what he wants, and then she would claim that they got married and he would say, no, we didn't. And they would have no way to, um, you know, confirm that. So the church imposed canonical form upon all Catholics and just to say, okay, if you don't get married according to this form and nobody witnesses the marriage in the name of the church and have two other witnesses present, um, then we're not going to regard it as valid. So it's, it's what we call a merely ecclesiastical law as opposed to uh, divine law. So the church can impose it and the church can dispense from it. Um, and, and that happens frequently too, where if a Catholic, let's say, marries a Presbyterian and the, the father of the Presbyterian bride is a, is a pastor, uh, the Catholic party can request a dispensation from canonical form um, so that he doesn't have to get married in the church and then go get married 
in the Presbyterian Church. And that's done validly and licitly. Um, but if they, yeah, if they don't do that, then they can come and, and again, this healing at the root, this radical sanation. Basically what it does is um, it retroactively dispenses the party from canonical form. So it's it kind of causes more problems than it solves conceptually. It solves a lot of problems practically. <laughs> but uh, conceptually, it, it's, it's kind of weird because it's like, okay, well, the only thing that was preventing you from actually being ma validly married in the eyes of the church this whole time was simply that in some way or another, you didn't follow canonical form. So how about yeah. and yet, we just sign a yet, piece of paper and call it good? Right. And yet, the let's say the marriage had failed. Well, then we would have appealed to the failure to follow canonical form and say, wow, well, I was never married well, to begin Exactly. With. That's why it's weird is because uh, yeah. up until that document is signed, it is an invalid marriage. Period. Right. It's invalid. Whereas after they sign that document, it becomes it, it, it um, everything in the past becomes valid. <laughs> yeah. So they this comes to this comes to an issue, right? Presumption under the law. Um, right. Which is basically. I don't want to get too far into the weeds on that discussion because I have some things to say about this ratiocination thing. Um, or not ratiocination, you know, radical, radical sanation. Sanatio and radicetia. Yeah. I like so, to call um, it <clears throat> So the, uh, but presumption under the law, right? That's basically saying mm. that until demonstrated otherwise than what the law says is what we take to be yeah. the case, right? Yeah. So, um, we presume your marriage to be valid. It has not been tested for nullity. Mm -hmm. And unless that day comes, right, we're right. just going to take for granted your marriage is valid. Yeah, And that's true of marriages that um, appear happy on the surface. And it's true of marriages yeah. that have ended in divorce. Yep. Um, right. Until yep. the case is actually brought forward and we, 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 we cut through it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, my understanding of um, of this um, radical sanation process, right, is that it in, it also involves a finding of fact. So we can't just willy nilly. I mean, it's not a magic trick. We can't just willy nilly decide that one marriage is valid and another is not. What's actually happening is that this is my theological understanding of it. Um, we recognize that when the couple exchanged their vows, when they when they began what they considered to be their marriage, mm -hmm. their intention was to do what the church understands marriage to be. Yeah. Right? Another way to put that would be there was nothing lacking on a human level. Yeah, on a human level, Pre right? Presumably. So they're like, we're going to live together yeah. Um, yeah. for the rest of our lives. We're going to bear children yeah. as a gift from God, yeah. blah, blah, blah. We're going yep. to be faithful and exclusive with each other. Yep. Um, and in fact, they have done so. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. And there was no impediment that prevented them from yep. doing so. Right. Yep. So yep. they have. Unknown at the time. Right. So we look at that and say, well, all the objective in ingredients of a marriage yep. are there. Yep. Um. 
So the form is purely, yeah. in this case, superficial. Exactly. Yeah. Then that's the idea behind it. Uh, so two things I want to say here is that in order to um, to grant the synopsio, um, we have to be sure that consent perdures. So um, we can't legally speaking sanate a marriage where the couple no longer wants to be married. Um, so that would be like an invalid canonical act if it turns out the couple didn't want to be married anymore. So there is some kind, at least, and this, the reason why I'm qualifying this will make itself clear in a second, but there has to be at least some kind of knowledge on the part of the one giving the senatio that the couple still wants to be married. Um, the other thing I want to say about it is that in canon law, it actually says that the senatio can be given even without the knowledge of the parties, which can sometimes complicate things, but it sometimes can actually make things very easy. So one example uh, that was shared in, in my classes you know, a number of years ago was um, not an example where canonical form was not even attempted. It was an example where canonical form was attempted, but it went awry. <laughs> And so what happened was the you have the uh, Catholic couple, they're doing a wedding mass and the priest, uh, you know, does the, the rite of marriage and all that. And then they get to the Eucharistic prayer or some, you know, somewhere along after the, the rite of marriage, he actually realizes I never said the part with the vows. <laughs> they, I never had them exchange vows. So. He didn't say anything for the rest of mass, but he calls them aside after. And he's like, guys, I'm so sorry. Um, you, you aren't actually married because I, I skipped the part with the vows. <laughs> so come to my, uh, or come to the, I guess the, um, not his office. It was the sacristy, I guess. Come to the sacristy and and we'll just fill that in and, and call it good. And, and that would be okay, right? That, that would be okay for him to do Awkward, that. but yeah. Awkward, right? <laughs> like you had one job. Technically, you had two jobs, <laughs> say mass and make sure they <laughs> say vows, and he did not do that. But anyway, um, so him and the, the couple go to the sacristy. They exchange vows, uh, and they live as husband and wife for like 20 years, or whatever. It was a long period of time. Well, um, who did not come back to the sacristy <laughs> with the priest and the couple? It was the witnesses. It was just oh, three people. Yeah, uh -huh. You got to have five people minimum for a valid canonical marriage. The husband, the wife, the the minister, whoever it is, and two witnesses, five people uh -huh. minimum. And that, and that one, there were only three. And so um, in that particular circumstance, um, they did not want to remain married. But hypothetically, let's say they wanted to remain married. And the priest, um, you know, somehow many years later, discovers that uh, he didn't have the witnesses there and he was supposed to. Well, he knows the couple, you know, they're they're doing well, they're happy, they're having kids. Um, he can simply, on their behalf, I guess is kind of how it would work out, um, but behind their backs, request a sanatio and radice, and they don't even need to know. So it's more like in those weird circumstances where either the priest didn't have the, or deacon or whatever, didn't have the proper faculty. 
So like, let's say he goes outside of his diocese and just fails to obtain the faculty from the, uh, the local pastor or the diocesan bishop or something. Yeah, that probably um, happens a fair amount. I would say that probably, yeah. I mean, I don't know how much. Not like, like massive amounts, but like, yeah, because people often call in their own priests, right? And I would, I would yeah. bet that sometimes people forget or to file deacons. paperwork. I, I would think it happens more with deacons, where where like deacons don't know. But then again, uh, usually pastors of, of parishes know. And if a deacon is going to come do a, a wedding, then the pastor will be like, "Hey, have you requested your faculty yet?" And the deacon yeah. might be like, "Oh no, what's that?" Uh, and then find yeah, out. But, I can. Im- yeah. I mean, I just. But whatever. Yeah. So. So in it theory, probably does happen. Remember how how I said you've got a senatio and radice on the one hand, and a simple convalidation on the other hand. My, um, my read on things, limited read on things, um, is that the simple convalidation primarily is meant for situations where canonical form was not even attempted. Right. You didn't even try to get married in the church. And then the radical sanation, the sanatio, is more for those kind of like fluke scenarios where we tried, but like there was something just kind of weird that happened and um, we we should just call it good, right? Uh-huh. Like, oh, we didn't have the delegation, uh, you know, shoot, my bad. Well, we'll just call it good. Even though technically speaking, the law says a radical sanation can be given um, Any time the invalidating circumstance is is merely ecclesiastical law, so that can be anything from one minor part of canonical form was lacking, all the way to the entire thing was lacking. So okay, let me, let me throw is, out a scenario. Yeah. Um. This husband and wife, civilly at least. Mm-hmm. show up for RCA they both want to convert um and you know they come forward in good faith they think of themselves as validly married now they weren't catholic at the time they married mm-hmm. so um they're not bound to a form according to catholic teaching right yeah but they were protestant some kind of protestant and in their church they have a very conservative view of marriage, very similar to the Catholic view, let's say. But they, um, but under some circumstances, the language they use isn't language of annulment, but divorce and remarriage. Yeah. And so they, one of the parties had previously been married to a Christian spouse. And... Um, and they got divorced. And they got divorced for reasons that it turns out would um, would be nullifying reasons in the Catholic Church. They worked through the situation with their pastor before they got married again. And the pastor was like, it's fine. It's good. You can remarry. Yeah. Um, everything I'm so saying right like now, a, everything like I'm saying right now, I don't know a particular case, but like I know there yeah. are churches in which this could happen. Yeah. Right? So, um, so are you talking like a watered down pseudo annulment process? Like within their church, yeah, because they're not Catholic. But within their church, they approach things in a way that's similar, right? That's very similar. Maybe not with all the legal trappings, but they talk through the marriage. They're like, what went wrong? And they, they are, in fact, getting at what you and I would 
would think about as nullifying yeah. characteristics of the the attempted marriage, right? Yeah. And so the pastor's like, yeah, you uh, you can get remarried, all right? But the Catholic Church does not recognize the legality of that particular process, right? And right. so she was yeah, married in a Christian church in the past. Yep. She now entered into another marriage after having um, dissolved that one in the civil court. We don't recognize the validity of the marriage she's currently in. Would yeah. this be a scenario in which the Catholic Church might use a radical sanation? No, um, because a radical sanation is only used to, if you will, cover up uh, defects of merely ecclesiastical law. Okay, so but, but let, me, case, let me argue for merely ecclesiastical law here. There was so the, no merely ecclesiastical law that bound these parties because they weren't bound to any ecclesiastical law. Well, no, no, but, but, okay, but hold on. So, um, I'll tell you what would happen, but go okay. ahead. Okay. Because I'm thinking like this, right? I'm thinking it's not that they're bound to a form about the contraction of marriage, but um, the Catholic Church would not recognize them as having been able to contract a sacramental marriage given the right. fact that she had previously been married. Right. We don't we don't canonize, if you will, the determination of that pastor, even if he uses similar categories and arrives at a conclusion that we may end up agreeing with. Uh, okay. We don't so even that, do this for Orthodox. So what would you do? Or, so what, what, yeah, what we would do is we would initiate a uh, process for a declaration of nullity um, and... You know, let's say we even bring in this pastor as a witness and mm -hmm. and we discover that the marriage is the first marriage is invalid. Um, in order to start being married to this now second spouse, uh, you actually don't do anything. We we recognize that. Um, oh, actually, at the time this the second marriage happened, uh, you were free to marry all along. So you're good. So that's not the same as a radical sanation. No, it sounds the same. It sounds the same on the surface. In both no, cases, you're retro you're retroactively recognizing the validity of the marriage from its inception. Um. No, because a radical sanation is slightly different. A radical sanation would it it has retroactive effects. Uh huh. But. Basically, what it does is it it makes it it makes it to be valid, whereas the scenario I just described it would just reverse or alter our presumptions, right? So the presumption in the scenario that you laid out was that the you know spouse the the let's say the wife was married to her first husband the whole time and therefore incapable of contracting marriage with a new man. Um, but if we overturn that presumption and we say, oh, the first marriage was invalid this whole time, now what we're presuming is, okay, great, she was free to marry when she married her second husband. And did, in and fact. So, and, and, yep, like, mm. so you don't need to say your vows again. We have discovered reality, and we've discovered that you were free to contract marriage with the second husband when you did. So we're not retroactively doing anything. We are 
altering our presumptions. Yeah. See, that makes the radical sanation thing seem really weird to me. Because, it is really weird. Because it, it does sound it does sound a lot like a legal fiction in that case. It um, kind of is a legal fiction because up um, until the moment of that piece of paper, the marriage kind of hangs in the balance, right? Like if I got married outside the church, um, my marriage is invalid. It's invalid. It's invalid. It's invalid. It's invalid. And then when it comes time to, you know, we are aware that we need either a convalidation or a radical sanation. Like if we choose the convalidation route, well, then it stayed invalid that whole time. If we choose the radical sanation route, then it makes it to be valid that whole time. So it's like, it's almost contradictory, right? Are we saying that it was valid or that it wasn't? Were you living in like sin it. or not? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, right. So yeah, that's where it gets to be a little weird. I, there's people out there. Um, I, I don't know exactly where I stand on this. But there's people out there who advocate with uh, for like doing away with canonical form that it just like causes more problems than it solves. Doing away with canonical form. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I the think that would be a mistake. I think what we need is a my own view would, would my my own solution to this problem is rather to attach rather to um, attach a different theological significance to the act of radical sanation. <laughs> So it looks a lot more like what I was thinking with that other couple, right? That what you would be, what you would be doing is bringing. I mean, I'm not a canonist, so like, what am I talking about? But I, I'm thinking when I think of when I have thought of radical sanation up to this point, I've always thought about it as bringing the canonical status into conformity with the theological reality. But no, not, it's not really, yeah. You're kind of bringing the theological reality and the canonical status up to speed with each other, maybe. I maybe I don't know. Maybe I don't know. It's 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 not. I don't like radical sanations. It doesn't uh, make sense. See, I brought it up because I thought maybe that was a good day. Like maybe this was a success story instead of a failure. Oh well, so we don't actually handle radical sanations in the tribunal. That goes. That's an administrative. Uh, process it's um, not even really a process it's just you send a piece of paper um but but we're the judicial wing of things maybe certain dioceses have radical nations go in through the tribunal but we don't um what you might be thinking is a lack of form case uh, that's the easiest case where um you know you have somebody who got married outside of canonical form and then they get divorced and um we're just like okay you didn't get married in the church. You you don't have any notation on your baptismal record. Your marriage record shows that you got married by you know some you know just a peace or somebody. Um, there's no record of you getting married in the church anywhere. Uh, okay, good to go. <laughs> it takes like two weeks tops, not even. Like we we get the file in, and if our judicial vicar is in there that day, like he can declare it invalid that day. It's actually like not even technically a tribunal process. Yeah. So like the Elvis Chapel. Now yeah, the exactly. um I, I know we're we're running long at this point, but I want to and I, and this is a big can of worms, but I just okay. maybe thought I'll comment, keep it brief. A comment on this. Um so we don't believe in divorce and remarriage. That is mm. for sacramental marriages. Yeah, okay, good. I did want to talk about this. Um so like 
What about marriages that aren't sacramental, but the church actually recognizes as having been validly contracted? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, these are the terms that I learned in school. I think they're pretty helpful. Uh, so we'll use them. Um, all marriages are what we would call intrinsically indissoluble, mm -hmm. meaning the parties themselves are incapable the, and, and by, by the parties themselves, I mean the parties to the contract, right? So the parties themselves are incapable of dissolving the bond. Why? Well, reason number one, that's precisely what they said they would not do. That's what you sign on for in marriage, as you say, till death do us part, mm -hmm. not till I decide we are done or something like that. And there's all kinds of natural law reasons why that's part and parcel of the marriage contract, but we won't get into that. Um, so yeah, marriage is for life. Not just, we hope it's for life, but it is. The bond exists as long as both spouses are alive. Um, so it's, uh, whether it's sacramental or not, it's intrinsically indissoluble. The parties themselves cannot dissolve the bond. The state cannot dissolve the bond. Why? Because the state is not a party to the contract. They have, you know, they, they award you benefits but they did not bring the marriage into existence and they have um, no rights or obligations that arise from the contract. They're not a party to it. So um, no human extrapolating from there, no human person or group can dissolve uh, the marriage bond. Um, but the difference is in a, in a non-sacramental marriage versus a sacramental marriage, non-sacramental marriages are extrinsically dissoluble um whereas sacramental marriages are extrinsically indissoluble now who would be the party extrinsic to the marriage that could dissolve the bond well as fulton sheen says it takes three to get married the third person of course being god or in this case the other three persons being god <laughs> the father son holy spirit um so in natural marriage uh god can dissolve the bond. Uh, we see examples of this actually in the Old Testament where uh, Moses permits divorce, right? Um, our Lord says this, Moses permitted divorce because of the hardness of your hearts. And God, uh, you know, we can read the whole Old Testament, uh, did not regard anyone who was divorced and remarried as living in sin. Kind of weird to think about, but like that was the case. Um, but why? Because it was a non-sacramental marriage. As soon as marriage becomes sacramental, uh, this is the way I normally explain it. It it signifies something, right? It's a sacrament. That's what sacraments do. It signifies uh, and brings about uh, a reality. And in this case, the reality that it signifies and brings about is the marriage between Christ and the church. And if any marriage is going to signify the marriage between Christ and the church, it must necessarily be indissoluble even by god right because this is the eternal covenant mm -hmm. god will not dissolve the marriage between christ and the church and if a marriage between a man and a woman is going to signify that reality god will not dissolve that marriage right um the exception so basically what you're saying is, is god makes a promise in yeah. the marriage just as the husband and the wife did and when God makes that promise for the permanence of the marriage, he keeps it. It is not revoked. Yep, uh -huh. exactly. Right. So that would be the difference is that um, 
that's why the church says when two people who are baptized get married, it's just simply by that fact that it's indissoluble. It's because the baptized man is capable of signifying Christ and the baptized woman is capable of signifying the church. And when they make their vows, it is a, a bringing together of Christ and the church. Um, so, um, yeah, so marriage is intrinsically indissoluble all the way around, right? You, as a party to the marriage, said you would not dissolve the marriage. You, you, you vowed that, that you, know, you, you gave that up, right? You gave up your ability to dissolve the marriage, um, and so did your spouse. Um, and since nobody else is party to the contract, they can't dissolve the marriage either. So who does that leave? Nobody <laughs> except God. Uh, so, yeah, so God, uh, when he reveals it, can, uh, you know, outline scenarios in which marriage can be dissolved. In the old covenant, it was done through the chair of Moses. In the new covenant, it's done actually through the chair of Peter. So we've all heard of like Pauline privilege or the Petrine privilege, a.k.a. favor of the faith. Um I don't know how much down the rabbit hole you want to get on these, but those actually are not declarations of nullity, properly speaking. This is the church exercising the power of the keys of the kingdom um, to dissolve non-sacramental marriages. Yeah, so you're so saying that, say that so these are cases where a person who was not Christian at the time yes. the marriage was contracted yes. had been married to someone who also was not Christian. And now enters into the church. Possibly somebody who was not Christian. It depends on the case. The church can dissolve any non-sacramental marriage. Um, I'd have to pull up the the scripture verse, but it's in one of the two Corinthians yeah. where, where Paul mentions that, right? Like if the unbelieving spouse, um, well, so, so if you have a, a, a believing spouse who gets baptized, or it's just an unbelieving spouse who gets baptized. And then the, the you, you now have a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse. And then the unbelieving spouse departs. Paul says, uh, the believing spouse is not bound. We are called to live in peace. <laughs> right. And the way that the church has typically interpreted that is um, Paul is giving a privilege to people who are newly baptized, whose spouses have abandoned them, to now get married sacramentally this time. And so um, that in the development of these dissolution cases, that was kind of the first one to be recognized. Well, I remember the in, the, in the early church, this issue came up in some of the canons of various councils and synods. And um, in there, the, there was a distinction drawn between a person who entered into such a marriage after having become Christian and a person mm -hmm. who entered into such a marriage before becoming Christian. Yep. So that and Christians we still recognize were never that permitted the Christians were never were never permitted to divorce their spouses. Mm -hmm. uh, at least that's the way these early yeah. canons treated the yeah. case. Yep. We still kind of treat it that way as well. Um, when so there's there, we're we're dealing with two different case types here. One of them is the Pauline privilege, which I just outlined, which is where the uh, unbelieving spouse departs and we have certain mm -hmm. criteria as far as like what that means what counts as having departed but um there's this other case type of a a, a favor of the faith or a petrine privilege so-called because 
Whereas in the Pauline privilege, it's the new, this is again, very much in the weeds and we don't have time to get into all of it. But in the, in the Pauline privilege, the new sacramental marriage is what dissolves the old one. So it, it think about it like it supplants the greater supplants the lesser. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the favor of the faith cases, um, it's actually uh, the, the Pope exercising the power of the keys to actively dissolve that marriage before the new one is contracted. And in a favor of the faith case, the difference is um, you have a baptized person marrying a non-baptized person from the beginning. So if they're both unbaptized and then one seeks baptism and one leaves, Pauline privilege, right? As outlined in Corinthians. If you have a baptized person and an unbaptized person, and then they divorce, and the baptized person is not at fault for the divorce, these are the stipulations that are added by ecclesiastical mm-hmm. law, um, then that marriage can be dissolved uh, and a new sacramental even if marriage. It, even if it would not pass a, a nullity test. Even if it would not pass a nullity test, yeah. So in those circumstances, we kind of, you know how at the beginning I said an annulment is a declaration of nullity is not are the reasons for divorce justified? We're not looking uh-huh. at, is there grounds for divorce? We're looking at, was the marriage valid from the beginning? Well, mm-hmm. that that statement kind of doesn't apply in these dissolution cases. We're not really looking at who's at fault for the divorce um, per se. We're looking at, are is the person seeking the dissolution the person who caused the breakdown of the marriage. And if they are, they need to repent of that and reestablish marriage. Subtle difference, but in any case. So when we say the Catholic Church doesn't believe in divorce, um, <laughs> that's true, <laughs> but also with an asterisk next to it. Because yeah. All marriages are intrinsically indissoluble, right? No party can dissolve their marriage. No state can dissolve the marriage, but God can. And where does God exercise his authority to dissolve the marriage? Precisely from the chair of Peter. So I find it helpful to say the Catholic Church doesn't believe in divorce because what everybody means by that is, well, I can divorce my spouse, which the Catholic Church does not believe in. But um, yeah, in these kind of narrow circumstances, it actually does dissolve marriages regularly. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yep. Yeah. So that was really interesting. Um, yeah. I know we could, we could talk more about this sort of thing and maybe in some future podcast we will. Yeah. I, um, I particularly to, find fascinating questions in the comments. And yeah. We'll, we'll put your questions in the comments and, and maybe we can, we can revisit this, but yeah. uh, my own, my own thing here is um, I, I really find interesting the various kinds of impediments that the church talks about in uh, annulment, right? Yeah. Um, try to, I'd like to do a podcast in the future in which we really talk about that. Um, cool. Yeah, we can do that. The, my, favorite, my favorite one is crime, cremen, where if you uh, murder somebody else's spouse in order to marry that person, then it's invalid. Yeah, um, I think that probably came up because of certain known historical events. 
I'm, but, there's a uh, reason for every law. <laughs> but I mean, it probably doesn't come up that often. Yeah, not in actual life, unless you're like a king. Yeah. But, um, but nonetheless, I mean, maybe it does come up, but, but I, I do find the impediments really interesting, and I think that, um, you know, when you think about the number of instances in which null in which nullity is uh in fact found for a marriage it does kind of look like there is this um people are just really poorly prepared for marriage oh totally yeah so yeah i'd like to talk about that a little a little bit further in another podcast let's do it but for now um thanks a lot for um for coming and uh and i'm sure our audience has gotten a great deal uh out of this discussion 